Good morning, and everyone, and welcome to a special edition of a Vision for You Big Book Study. Today is Sunday, December 4th, 2022. My name is Melanie C., a recovered compulsive overeater living in Canby, Oregon. The share ID numbers for Friday, December 2nd, 2022, are the following. The 7 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study share ID number is 19701-19701. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study Meeting, the share ID number is 19702-19702. And how wonderful that you all came in today from all over the globe and to take part in this presentation. It is pure glory to be recovered and recovering together. A Vision for You Sunday Special Edition is a time to sit back and enjoy the miracles of the program and sink deeply into the testimonies and teachings of those that are presenting so magnificently today from their experiences because of the study and the application of recovery outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a real gift for the weekday focus study group to be able to be together this morning to hear about those things. This morning, A Vision for You presents Misconceptions That Blocked My Recovery. Now, here we are. We've landed in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. We came by way of our own awareness or that of someone sharing about a, a way we're coming up out of this place that we found us our, ourselves in. We've listened in on a few meetings, heard great personal stories of profound, far-reaching miracles. We hear of great days and being, being filled with joy and gratitude. We hear of building friendships that last a lifetime. Some of us may have even heard the phrase, our family of choice, when referring to these relationships. We have heard of families being reunited. We have heard of financial ruin turning into riches. We have heard of great spiritual metamorphosis. We are so eager to step in and be transformed by these things called the steps that we hear and see. And these have all come true. Our first take, step one, will help see that this is not our fault, that I have no power. Step two tells me that I do not have to do any of this. I just decide and it's going to happen to me. Because step three says, I just have to magically pick up my parcel of mismanaged life and hand it over for someone else to clean up and hand it freshly renewed and reformed back to me. And voila. Well, I'll take a guess and make a bet that misconceptions abound in in the world of recovery for addiction. As phenomenal as recovery is in 12-step work, it is, and it is, it may have been sporting a few misconceptions about the process and the practice of the 12 steps of recovery. Well, we're in luck today, ladies and gentlemen, for we have invited to the line one of our own to speak on this very idea, the misconceptions that block and perhaps have blocked her. And what is so interesting and inspiring and perhaps enlightening, our speaker will be walking us through the experience of learning of these things while in recovery through that process you'll have the opportunity to acquire this knowledge perhaps long before you arrive at such a place yourself, which would be quite a gift. So today our speaker will pull some of those things out and talk about them in the way that they blocked the recovery process. A vision for you is so happy to welcome the idea of this topic to the line today because I think it's relatively common for all of us and so very important and quite timely, I think, coming into this new year of living. Nessa R. is our guest speaker today, and she hails from Canada. 
as many of you know, Nessa has been a member of this Big Book study for quite a number of years. He has been a solid, formidable volunteer, dependably helping in the daily studies each and every single day. You'll also find several Sunday special editions that feature Nessa R. So looking forward to hearing what she has to say on this theme. Let's bring her up to the podium this morning and welcome her to this meeting. Welcome, Nessa. Hi, Melanie. Thank you so much. Your introductions was so much better than anything I could than, than anything I'm prepared to say at this point. So we can just skip through the questions because um, you covered you covered it all. <laughs> Anyhow, I'm 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 Nessa R. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Toronto, Canada, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity, the um, honor, the privilege to be able to do service at this wonderful meeting. Um, you know, when, I, when I'm asked to share my story, I'm usually um, reluctant to go in depth into my story because there's really nothing new um, or earth-shattering um, that's different from any of our stories, any of uh, the people on the line's story. Um, but I understand that it, sharing my personal story of recovery is important for people to identify. So just, just, just for purpose of, of identifying in, I'm just going to say something very, very briefly. Um, I came in to the rooms of OA uh, almost 20 years ago. Um, in January of 2003, weighing almost 200 pounds, which might not sound horrendous because it's not 300 or 400 pounds, but I'm, I'm quite petite. And so for me, uh, 200 pounds is seriously obese. Um, and like everybody else, I had done horrendous things with food. Um, before coming in and even after I came in, as I'm going to talk about in my in my story, um, I had tried all the diets and all the weight loss schemes, self-help books, you know, pay and weigh and, you know, expensive programs and nothing really worked. And so this was really my last chance. Um, and so I came in... Um, pretty discouraged. And at my first meeting, I found hope when I heard, as, as Melanie said in her introduction, that there was nothing really wrong with me, that it wasn't my fault, that I am an addict, a compulsive overeater, and I had a disease. And that, that gave me so much relief. But what followed, sadly, were nine years of not accomplishing much in the rooms of OA. I actually uh, am about uh, two weeks short of 11 years of recovery, so 20 minus 11, that's nine years when I kind of flipped and flopped inside the rooms of OA, uh, and in the process acquired so many misconceptions about abstinence and about the steps that um, really brought me back to the initial discouragement um, that I came in with, um, you know, I had all these expectations that were not met. Uh, at some point, I even thought I was constitutionally incapable, as it says on uh, page 58 in the uh, introduction to the steps on how it works. Um, and I just thought I was going to be fat and miserable for the rest of my life, which I foresaw to be 
uh, was going to be quite short, um, given given the obesity level at which I was. And you know, so I I only I only um, got straightened out uh, by my my current sponsor, whom I met I guess maybe 12 years ago, and she was the the one who set me on the path of entire abstinence and working the steps according to the big book so that I could attain recovery. So I'm going to start with abstinence first. Um, Abstinence prior to being recovered is very hard, very, very hard, because, you know, we have removed the only solution that I ever had to, to my living problem. You know, food was never my problem, it was my solution. And when I didn't ha- when that solution was removed through abstinence, um, I was Nessa, we've lost you. Hi, so sorry the the voice came on. Um, mm. Are you? Uh, am I still being heard? You are now. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, you know, but I still didn't have access to God. So I don't have the food and I don't have God, which are the only solutions to, 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 to my problems. And so I'm feeling extremely, extremely uncomfortable. Um, and in the rooms that I was frequenting at the time, you know, almost 20 years ago, there were these, co- these concepts like sloppy abstinence, 99% abstinence, you know, that kind of imply, well, it's okay if I cheat a little bit. Um, there were other expressions used. The most horrifying was legal binges. Um, I still can't figure out what a legal binge is uh, because by definition, you know, in in entire abstinence, all binges are illegal. Um, But I think that that one is connected to the expression of abstinent foods. Oh, it's an abstinent food, so you know what? I'm just going to eat you know, 65 pounds of celery. Um, and, you know, that's, that's an issue. That's an issue. Um, the other expression that, that uh, caused problems for me was, well, progress, not perfection, which is actually a corruption of the expression on page 61 in High Works that says we claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. So abstinence is not a spiritual fo- uh, a step. Um, the spiritual steps are 2 through 12, which mean that, okay, I'm going to make mistakes, and that's okay because I'm still human. But abstinence is within my control, um, and I can be entirely abstinent or not if I, if I choose to. So it's progress, not perfection, implied that, oh, well, I can just, you know, I can just make mistakes, quote-unquote, on my food, and it's all going to be okay. Um, and I used to think if I can control my abstinence, then I wouldn't be here. Any diet would be okay. Um, and and that is true. And that is true. Um, but there's a caveat that um, when I say control my abstinence, I mean make a choice. Do I want do I want recovery or do I want immediate comfort? Right? Because the discomfort of abstinence is only temporary. Right? Until I get recovered. Um, and I can bear discomfort for a limited period of time, right? Um, so anyhow, like this is misconceptions with the food, 
led me to less than perfect abstinence, certainly not entire abstinence. And this had two, 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 two drawbacks for me. Number one, it lessened the discomfort of abstinence. And the problem with that is that only discomfort and pain lead me to the desperation to do anything I need to do in order to change the status quo, you know? And so I never had in those nine years the, the desperation needed uh, because I was, I was always in like low-grade pain, but it was low-grade, you know, kind of like a, like a dull headache that you can still go through your day. You don't, take the, you don't take a Tylenol, but you can still function. You can still go to work. You know, it's just kind of there in the background. This is how the food was for me. So I was never able to, to get to the, to the gift of desperation. And the other problem is that because I kept going back into um, the food, I never really got out of the allergy, right? So it became a vicious cycle because, you know, if I'm ingesting allergens, um, then I'm always experiencing the allergy and I always, I'm always wanting more. So, the, so abstinence becomes nearly impossible. And so what did it for me was the recognition that I am capable to withstand the discomfort. I am choosing to remain uncomfortable for a brief period of time. And that period of time can be very, very short, you know, two months, even less than two months, you know, six weeks, a month. Uh, I, I, can I can stay on a diet faithfully for, for that period of time. But in the meantime, you know, I, I got to do the work um, quickly so that I'm no longer uncomfortable in my abstinence. And I'll, I'll tell you, 11 years going, abstinence is just not even um, actively in my, in my mind. It's just, it's just the way I live. You know, um, it's not really on the radar screen that, oh, I have, to, I have to stay entirely abstinent. It's just something that I do, like I'm brushing my teeth. And it's as painful as brushing my teeth, as uncomfortable as, you know, washing my face in the morning. Um, it's not. It's not, um, it's not at all. So that, that was the first, uh, the first uh, block um, of misconceptions that I had to get past. And then I got to, um, to step one. You know, I thought once the food is down, it's going to be smooth sailings, and I'm not going to have any cravings. I'm not going to have any chatter. Um, you know, it's just going to be easy. The food's not going to call to me. Wrong. Because once I'm entirely abstinent, you know, my mind starts going, right? The, 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 uh, the obsession of the mind kicks into high gear to get me to go back in the food. And so when I'm thinking that, I, that, it's smooth, that it should be smooth sailing, you know, those false expectations, you know, trip me up, right? Because I think, well, if, it's, if, I, if I'm going through all this pain for nothing, then I might as well just continue eating. Um, so that's another roadblock. Um, and, you know, food is, food is down, but the cravings, the smooth sailing doesn't happen until I finish working the steps, until I work the steps, until I'm in step 10. That's where I get, you know, the, the promise of neutrality. All those promises, the, the, the promises of the recovered state uh, happen when I'm in step 10. Um, and I'll go through that a little bit, a little bit further. So I need to expect that, yeah, that chatter is not going to go away. And what is my job? 
My job is simply not to listen to it. I don't care how convincing it is. I don't care how much sense it makes. I'm just not listening to that chatter because I need to protect my entire abstinence to get through this. The other, the other misconception I had in step one is the nature of the unmanageability of my life. You know, I used to think that I eat, I ate compulsively because my life was unmanageable. And so when it, when it was time to stop eating, of course I couldn't because my life was unmanageable, right? I had too many, too many burning fires. You know, I, I have uh, too, too many tiny balls up in the air, too much on my plate, no, no pun intended. You know, I have no time. How can I put program ahead of my children? Because I was taught program first, family second, uh, job third. You know, and I'm under tremendous pressure. I have so much going on. I have no time to breathe, you know. And so how can I even focus on all this work? And the truth is that um, I, I don't eat because my life is unmanageable. My life is unmanageable because I eat. And as long as I continue eating um, and staying away from doing the work, using those excuses, uh, my life is not going to become manageable. So I have to hunker down and not listen to all those um, messages that, I, that, that come from the disease. They come from the compulsive overeater inside my brain trying to, to uh, get me back to where it wants me, which is um, in the food. Um, so step one, I identify the problem. I am a compulsive overeater, and because I eat compulsively, my life is unmanageable, and food can no longer be my solution because it's not a solution at all. Um, so step two, I accept that God is my solution, um, that I need God. But then the misconception crept in that because I acknowledge that God is my solution, then I have to have an instant connection, and it has to be immediately available to me. You know, it's like the example that I usually give is, is um, if my dishwasher di uh, breaks down and the solution is to call a plumber, the plumber doesn't materialize right in front of my eyes to fix my, 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 um, my dishwasher. I have to, you know, find a good one, get referrals, call them, make an appointment, etc. right? So just because I identify that God is the solution doesn't mean I have a, an instant connection. You know, I, I've always thought I had a relationship with God and a, and a good connection at that, except that none of what I was praying was materializing. You know, the millions of dollars and the wealth wasn't materializing. The ability to eat all the cheesecake I wanted and still be thin wasn't materializing, you know, because it wasn't really a connection. It was just a one-way street where I bombarded God uh, with demands and requests and deals and bargains, um, and, and it doesn't work. And it, so it, it makes sense at this point that I have no connection with God, even though I identify Him as my, my solution, because I'm blocked from Him. First, I was blocked from Him by the food, which is my little G-God, but that went out in, in, in step one. But now I'm still blocked from God um, by myself, you know, my little plans and design, my character defects, my selfishness, my self-centeredness, right? Like selfishness and self-centeredness, that's the root of our problems, right? And I got to get rid of that. And it's not going to happen overnight. 
you know, it requires it requires a lot of work. It can happen fast, but certainly not overnight. The faster I've ever heard of anybody doing this test was over the span of a week. And that's because both her and her sponsor could devote themselves almost 24-7 to this endeavor, uh, which, you know, very few people have that that luxury of, of, of time. So... So um, that took me to step three, which says, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. And as, you, uh, as most people do, I, I deleted, ignored the beginning of the step, made a decision. And for me, step three was turn over my life, my will and my life over to the care of God. But how can I turn it over? Like it wasn't working. You know, it wasn't working because how can I turn over something to God when I have no relationship with Him? It was impossible. And so I would say, like, I can't feel God. I don't see God in my life. You know, He's not doing what I want. He's not giving me what I want. Um, and again, it's, it's something that's impossible. Uh, I'm just making a decision that that's going to be my goal, and my goal is going to be to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. And so when I make a decision, what am I really deciding? I'm deciding that I'm going to do whatever is necessary to get me there. Um, you know, I learned in program that step one tells me where I am. Step two tells me where I need to be. Step three tells me what I need to do to get there. Steps four through ten is actually doing it. Step 11 is there. That's the there that I have to get to. And step 12, or actually step 10, 11, and 12, enable me to stay there. Um, so... Um, Steps four and five, um, this was my chance to get everything off my chest. This was my chance to prove to at least one human being, my sponsor, that I was right, that I was hard done by, that I had every reason and justification to feel the way I was feeling and to act the way I was acting and that my sponsor would commiserate and would say, yeah, your life sucks, poor you, you're a victim. Um, this not, nothing of what you talk about is your fault. And therefore, there is nothing you need to do. It's all these people that you have grudges uh, against have to change. This is what I thought, thought step four was. Uh, and five, I guess. Um, and it's not that at all. Not that at all. You know, we take the focus off of, I took the focus off of, my, off of um, the others and put it on myself. That's what the big book says in pages um, 66 and 67. Um, whether I am right is irrelevant. Whether the other person is 99.8% culpable for the situation is also irrelevant. Um, and it makes perfect sense because if everything is on the other person's head, you're right. I am a victim. And there's absolutely nothing I can do to change my situation. 
But when the ball is in my court, when I am a participant in the debacle, then I have some control because I can change what I do. You know, I can change through the working of the steps and the transformation that God affects on me as a result, I can change my perspective. And this is what steps four and five are. It's an awakening to a new perspective. That my troubles are not caused by the fact that my children don't take out the garbage. And they don't do it when I ask them either. My troubles are because I am selfish and I want them to do it so I don't have to do it myself. Um, My troubles are a result of my dishonesty that I tell myself my kids are going to grow up to be derelict because they're not responsible with their chores. And, you know, I tell you, my children are all adults now. My youngest one is 21, almost 22. And they're all uber-responsible in other areas except their chores. So um, that change in perspective I found actually very empowering. Uh, my, 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 my sponsor drilled into me that when I have a problem, I am the problem. And, and this is like super empowering because if somebody else, else is the problem, I cannot control another person. So I'm stuck with the problem. But if I am the problem, hey, I'm me. I can choose what I think, say, and do. Then I can do something about the problem. Um, The issue, though, is in steps four and five, I don't know what to do about the problem, but that's where the next steps come in. Um, Steps six, seven, and eight, and nine. And here... I'm going to get into a little bit of controversy because, you know, some people have different views about steps um, six and seven. Um, um, there's wisdom in the rooms that says the reason why steps six and seven are only one paragraph each in the big book is because God does all the work. Um, I agree that that's true for step seven. I don't agree that that's true for step six. I think step six is where I do most of the hard work, actually, in this um, in this endeavor of recovery, in this journey of recovery. Step six says, we're entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. So how do I make myself entirely ready? And how do I show God that I am entirely ready? Um, and the example that I like to give is, with the food, actually. God will remove my mental obsession. I cannot do that by myself. If I did, I, I, I wouldn't be here. But in order for God to remove my mental obsession about the food, I have to put the food down. So in step seven, I ask God to remove the defect. But I have to put this. the defects down, and that's what I do in step six. And it's as hard, maybe even harder, than putting the food down. It's as uncomfortable as abstinence. But in a way, I have to be abstinent of um, of my defects, of acting out on my defects. Um, And I, I also use this very trite example. 
I cannot ask God to remove my desire to speak gossip when I keep speaking gossip. That doesn't show that I am entirely ready. Quite the contrary. You know, not only that, it shows that I'm enjoying. I, I'm getting some kind of a payoff from this, from this um, uh, gossip mongering, right? So I got to stop. And it's uncomfortable because then all of a sudden I'm not part of the fun conversations. All of a sudden I don't get the uh, feeling of self-importance for knowing details that maybe nobody else knows, you know. But if I really, truly want God to take it away from me, I got to put it down. Um, And so this is step six. Like I, I think step six is the... Is is the key transformation step. It's it's what helps me uh, at least rein in my knee-jerk reactions to be selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and and fearful. Um, So in step six, I do all the work. Um, I find that most people would rather run a 75-mile marathon than than than, than exert themselves mentally because it's very hard. It requires that I'm, I'm aware that I'm aware as, as much as I can of the time of what I'm doing and thinking and saying, you know. And it's very hard to, to maintain that, that level of mindfulness. And this is why we say we claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. I'm not going to be able to do it all the time, but I need to focus and do it a lot of the time. And it starts, sometimes it's after the fact. Uh, and then, you know, we start getting better at it until we think about, I, I think about it during the moment and then before the fact. You know, it's kind of like when I'm driving and I pass a car that wants to uh, turn into my lane and I think, oh, I should have let that person through, right? I didn't let him through because I wasn't thinking about other people. I was just thinking about where I'm going. But if I start driving more mindfully and looking around, me, it's like, oh, then I can see the person you know, uh, in the next blog, wanting to turn. It's the same thing with my, um, with my step six and, and, and um, um, becoming entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Then, of course, uh, step seven, I do ask. Not a lot of misconceptions there. Um, but there's a key one. Just because I ask doesn't mean it's going to be taken away immediately. You know, God has to determine when is the right time for me. It's on God's time, not on my time, um, for him to remove the the defect of character. Um, I have had um, one defect of character, I would say, almost completely removed, which is my self-pity, which is a a, a manifestation of selfishness. I so very rarely go into self-pity now, and I was the queen of self-pity when I came in. Um, and it took a lot of work. Um, selfish, dishonesty, and fear are, are a work in progress. You know, um, sometimes uh, sometimes are better than others. Um, so so it's getting there. Um, step eight. Made all persons we had a list of all persons we have harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. When I first did my steps. Um, oh, actually, I forgot to say something about abstinence. I want to say it now because this, this just reminded me, but I'm going to conclude with step eight first before I go on the tangent. Um, I was told to make th- uh, uh, a chart with three columns. 
amends to make now, amends to make later, and amends that I would make never. That's not what step eight says. It says, became willing to make amends to them all. The one person that I had on my never list was my father. Um, And I have a huge amount of regret now. Um, I recovered about a year before he passed away suddenly. And I was in the process of my amends. And by that time, I had gotten, uh, I had become willing to make amends to him. Uh, But I couldn't. I couldn't because he died on me. Um, Instead, I made amends to his wife, who's not my mother, and his son, who's my half-brother. And that was a lot more difficult to do than than if I had made amends to him directly. Not to mention the fact that it was probably one of the factors why I didn't recover um, all those years. Um, So what it just triggered with regards to the misconceptions regarding abstinence um, is the concept of yellow foods or gray foods, because I also went through that. You know, I was told to make a list of foods I could unequivocally eat, foods that I could uh, absolutely not eat, and foods that maybe, maybe they were okay, maybe they were not okay. Um, And what I find now is that those foods, those yellow foods or those gray foods, are actually foods that I should give up, that I don't want to give up. And as long as I keep eating those foods, I stay in the in the allergy. Um, so that's also a misconception. Um, I am now black and white. Either I can eat it, or I cannot eat it. And that's it. There's there's nothing there's nothing in between. There's no there's no half pregnant um, over here. Then moving to my amends. Most of what I heard in the rooms were people who had such incredible experience of amends, like total miracles of people that were sworn enemies who who became their best friends again and amazing relationships, even better than before the breakup started and, you know, everything just happened instantaneously, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, that was not my experience. Um, I would say most of my amends were graciously received. Not all the relationships were restored. Um, In one case, I was actually yelled at and yelled at some more. Um, But in all cases, even the relationships that were healed, none of them were immediately healed. You know, Big Book says, I think it's in page 83, that that there's a long period of reconstruction ahead. I didn't do this damage overnight, and I'm not going to repair it overnight. Moreover, um, I may not be able to fix everything we broke or everything I broke, Um, you know, as like with the person who yelled at me during the the amends. Uh, So when I go in to make amends, I need to discard all my expectations. There can be zero expectations, no expectations that my amends are going to be accepted, that, I'm, that the person is going to be graceful, 
that their patient is going to be, that the person is going to be grateful, no expectations of gratitude or admiration, no um, expectations of reciprocation. I don't think I don't think anybody that I made amends to actually made amends of their own. Certainly, no reciprocation there, and no expectation that the relationship will be restored, and certainly that it won't be restored immediately. Right, like, like I come in, especially with the usual suspects, right, like my family, my husband, my children, my sister, my aunt. Um, I have no credibility. How many times in the past decades have I apologized? Well, not my children; they haven't been alive like for major decades. But you know, for the how many times have I apologized to them and then gone back to do the exact same thing and apologize again and do the same thing and apologize? I have zero credibility. So I have to build that credibility, and that happens over time, you know. Um, so certainly no um, no miraculous um, reconciliations or, or, or remediations there. Um, the, the, other, <laughs> the other misconception in step nine is extremely dangerous. It's I finish the steps. Um, I did this, and I see students of mine do it too. We finish, the st- we finish the amends, we put the book back in the shelf, and we continue doing things the way we were doing them prior to working the steps. And then what happens? I'm back in the food. Um, why? Because I never finished the steps. The step is not um, a sprint. It's a, it's a lifetime marathon. The only time I will finish the steps is a is, is when 120 years, I will uh, be six feet under. Um, there's no such thing as finishing the steps, um, which um, takes me to step 10. Um, continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Uh, most, of, most of people I know, uh, in, including myself at the beginning, when we do a step 10, we basically, what you do is a quick step four on just one person or one incident, and we end there. We do steps four or five, and we're done, right? We just routed it off to somebody but changed nothing, okay? Uh, we need to do steps six, seven, eight, and nine as part of that step 10. Just telling my sponsor or my buddy why I'm resentful or why I'm fearful is not a step 10. Um, I cannot just unload on somebody, vent on somebody, and change anything, right? I need to really finish everything. I have to continue what I have been doing in these previous steps, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, you know? Because um, if I continue what I'm, if, if, I, if I continue doing what I'm doing, I continue doing, getting what I'm getting. I cannot expect everything to change when I don't change anything, right? And as I said before, uh, step six is very crucial here. It's not enough to identify my defects. I have to mindfully focus on when am I acting out on those defects and and rein them in. And, of course, i got to ask God to remove them, and i got to uh, make the amends if if and when appropriate, um, so, so that's for step 10. 
Um, step 11, huge misconception. And this is the there I talked about at the very beginning. This is I've arrived at my solution. But so often we, you know, I lose the forest for the trees because I focused on prayer and meditation, right? But prayer and meditation is not the most important part of step 11. The most important part of step 11 is um, improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Um, you know, I, I, I just kind of ignore all the other words and just focus on prayer and meditation. No, step 11 is prayer and meditation. No, step 11 is not prayer and meditation. Step 11 is a relationship with God where I tell him, I'm your employee, I'm your, tro I'm your soldier, give me my job, give me my mission. And I do that through prayer and meditation. Um, you know, prayer is when I'm talking to God. Meditation is when I'm listening to God. In prayer, I, I don't ask for what I want. I, in prayer, this is, and this is just personally what I do, I tell God what my quandaries are and seek direction. These are my dilemmas. I don't know what to do. These are the issues I'm facing. Please show me an answer. And then through meditation, maybe I get the answer there. Maybe I get it a little bit later, you know, days later, a week later, a month later. But the key thing here is not prayer and meditate. Like some people like, oh, just I took it to God and I'm still doing the same thing. Well, what did God want? What do you mean what God wants? Yeah, that's, that's the whole point of step 11, you know, to, um, to have the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry it out. Uh, and then finally, step 12. Um, I hear a lot and I believe that step 12 was service. So from the moment I came into the rooms of OA, I was doing service. I was the first person there. I was helping put up the chairs. I took the uh, the We Care list home. I was the last person to leave, um, you know, rearranging, you know, putting back the chairs again. And wonders of wonders, I wasn't recovering. You know, I don't understand why. Well, because step 12 is not service. And I don't knock service. Service is incredibly important, especially, you know, when we deal with our own selfishness. But step 12 is about carrying the message and working these principles in all our affairs. And before I am recovered, I have no message and no principle that I can um, um, practice in all our affairs. You know, step 12 is prefaced by, by saying, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So first I need to have a spiritual awakening. And how do I get it? It's the result. If I work these steps, that's what I'm going to get, the spiritual awakening. And what are the steps? It's these steps, not Nessa's steps, not, you know, Jamie's steps, not, you know, Johnny's steps. It's these steps, steps 1 through 12 outlined in the big book. It is not my program or your program. It's, it's the program. I have to follow these instructions. And once I have that spiritual awakening, then it says we try to carry this message. And I'm going to talk about this uh, for a little bit. 
because when I first started sponsoring, I got very discouraged. I thought I was going to go back into the food immediately because none of my sponsees were recovering. I was going to meetings that didn't seem interested in what I had to say. You know, they just wanted to do whatever they'd been doing forever. And so I thought, I'm not carrying the message. I'm not being effective here. Um, and so I had to look inside. And some of the answer was how I was doing it. I wasn't doing it in a very effective way. I was trying to, to bulldoze the program into everybody else's life. So I had to desist in doing that. And, you know, my sponsor pointed it out, thank God. But part of it, too, is that I forgot or ignored the fact that it says tried to carry the message. Um, why does it say try? Because in order for a message to be carried, there has to be a giver and a receiver. I can be the giver, but if nobody wants to receive, there's nothing I can do. So the fact that my sponsees are not recovering, as long as I'm doing, I'm, 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 you know, carrying the message or trying to carry the message in a proper way, not the way I did it at the beginning, um, it's on their head, not on mine. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, I stay abstinent and recovered, not by their recovering, but by my trying to carry the message. Uh, and then, of course, practicing these principles in all our affairs, you know, it's, it's very easy to practice this principle in, in, within our, our, our community, people that know what we're talking about. It's a lot more difficult to carry them out uh, in the outside world with our families, with our employers, you know, et cetera. But this is what I this is what I have to do, um, and I just want to close by saying uh, what I've said before that there is a long period of reconstruction ahead, but that's not um, something to be discouraged about. This is just something to manage our expectations so that we don't fall into these misconceptions that derail and block recovery. Um, and I guess this is really all I have to say about this subject. And uh, with that, I pass. Thank you for letting me do service. Thank Pardon me. Thank you very much, Nessa R. You know, there was so much content involved in here and how, how impactful it is to be able to see how there's, you know, these misunderstandings when we jump into the steps and what we might be able to receive, taking things out of context, only taking bits and pieces out. You did a really beautiful job of describing what I feel is pretty common in, in what these misconceptions can be and being able to direct it back to the big book to, to enlighten more, to pull it up more. And that's what a vision for you does every single week when we study only one paragraph or two at a time. We take it in, in its entirety for the entire instruction. That was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much, Nessa. You've given so much of yourself today in that regard. It's worth listening to again. So I wanted to say thank you and also give the share ID number so those that, that want to go back and pull out some more of those points, they can do that. Beautiful. Thank you so much. So the share ID for today, Sunday, December 4th, 2022, is 19704, 19704. So, ladies and gentlemen, the lines are now open for questions for Nessa. If you have a question, please unmute your phone by pressing star 1 on your phone keypad. Offer your first name, the first letter of your last name, and perhaps your state, please. And once you've asked your question, please press star 1 immediately and, and then remute your line. Um, who would like to ask a question today? Happy K. Penny C. Kathy K. Rifka. Penny C. 
Somebody from Baltimore. Rivka R. Somebody from Baltimore. Rivka R. Rivka R. And then Jody E. Pennsylvania. Jody E. Somebody from Pennsylvania. Susan C. Susan C. From Pennsylvania. Gotcha. Okay. Anybody else? Trisha G. Elaine S. Trisha G. Where are you from? Washington State. Washington State. Great. Hang on just one second. And then there was one more person after Tricia. Who was Elaine that? F. Elaine F. from oh, New York City. Okay, gotcha. Elaine F. from New York City. Okay, let's go with that lineup, and then we'll be, maybe have a chance for a few more to come in and ask questions. So, so far here, Nessa, we have Kathy K., Penny C., Rivka R., Jody E., Susan C., Tricia G., and Elaine F. Are you ready for them? Kathy K, your question, please. 100%. 100%. <laughs> great. Thanks, Mel. Hey, Kathy K. You're thank welcome. Thank you, Tony, for your service. And thank you, Nessa. Oh, my goodness, it was so great to hear you today. Um, and I really appreciate your service. I am stuck back on step six. What you said about step six rang so true for me. I mean, for years I didn't understand what I was supposed to do other than make a list of my glaring character defects or the ones that most recently popped in my site. But you said that it's probably the hardest step to work, and I find that to be the case, too. I wonder if you can give an example. I'm particularly concerned about... um, how I always come to step six with kind of a bit of impatience to get this right so that God will, in fact, remove the defect. And I think I'm probably taking too much control of step six. I wonder what you would say about that. Um, it's, it's It's an excellent question. I mean, I struggled with it too today, even though now I understand that I have a job to do. Um, actually, you know, before I, I continue with my answer, let me just say that I spell my name N-E-S-E-H, if people want to find me in the uh, members list. But um, 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 like, I'll give you an example. I'm a, I'm a like, I'm a selfish, controlling person. I want things done when I want them done. I'm very impatient. And so I tend to give commands, like when I get home, you know, take out the garbage, you know, bring this from the basement, unload my car, blah, 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 blah. You know, and it really has um, affected my relationship with my family members over the years. You know, people are on the defensive as soon as I, I come home. And so... You know, what I do is I, before I come home or before people arrive home, if I'm the first one to arrive, I try to focus on the fact that I'm not going to bombard people with requests. I'm going to think, okay, I'm not going to be selfish trying to unload my, my work on other people. What can I do before they get home? Um, and um, thinking, okay, I'm going to keep my mouth shut, just speak, uh, pleasantries, ask people how their day was, let them arrive home, uh, change into comfortable clothing, you know, go to the washroom, um, you know, have a little rest. And then if these things are still necessary, 
then maybe I can ask as long as it's maybe one thing or two things, not like a million things, uh, uh, a bombardment of a million things. This is something that I still struggle with, but um, I I use the time before that, let's say, family reunion to center myself and say, okay, we're not going to act out um, this defect. You're going to be welcoming to people you're going to be interested in what they have to do. You're going to cut them some slack. You're going to let them relax. Um, and you know what? If you have to do some of the work that should be their work, that's fine too. You know, it's part of becoming uh, a selfless, um, considerate, sensitive individual. So I, I prep myself beforehand. Yeah. And, you know, when they're there, uh, when they're actually there, then... I have to practice a lot of restraint of tongue, um, and sometimes a little bit white knuckled, but that's okay because I'm putting my relationships first uh, instead of putting first, you know, the the the, the to do list that needs to be accomplished by you know like I don't know 7 p.m. Right? right. Um, I'm choosing I'm choosing my family and my relationships with them over the completed to do list. Um, it requires focus and requires mindfulness. And it requires willingness. Thank you. I don't know if that answers your question. I, I, I hope it does. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nessa. Thank you very much for the question, Kathy Kay. Next up is Penny C, and that will be followed by Rivka R. Thank you, Mel. This is Penny C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from the Boston area. And Nessa, it was such a delight to hear you first thing this morning. Thank you so much. And my question has to do with uh, asking you what your response would be to something I heard at um, a face-to-face big book um, step meeting here in my area. The leader, in talking about step seven, quoted the seventh step prayer, which says, um, that we ask God to remove every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. And she made, made the comment that we're not asking God to remove all our defects, just the ones that stand in the way of my usefulness to God and my fellows. And my question is, how would you respond to, to that? Wow. Um um, I need to think about that for for a little bit um, because um, i I cannot think of an example of a character defect that doesn't stand in my personal way uh, uh, of being of service to God and my fellows. I think in my personal case, they all stand in the way of my usefulness because they all stem from the selfishness and self-centeredness that pervades my compulsive overeating addicted mind. Um, So I think that that that's how I would answer that. I don't know. Maybe the, the leader of this meeting did have a defect that didn't stand in the usefulness in her usefulness to others. I don't know. I just 
I just from my own personal experience, I think all my defects stood in my way, and some of them continue to stand in my way. Thank yeah, you very I'm much, sorry. Penny. I'm sorry. Did I jump on you? No, I just said I'm sorry. This is uh, this is all I have. I can't think of anything else. Thanks for the question, Penny C. Something wonderful to to ponder. So next up is Rivka R, and then followed by Jody E. Hey, Rivka. Hi. Um, good morning. Thank you so much, Nessa, for such a wonderful presentation. Um, so every day I say um, the words, you know, uh, that I pray for the knowledge of uh, God's will for me and the power to carry it out. And I'm just wondering if you could elaborate on that and maybe some concrete examples of how you see that working in your life. Um, yeah, that is, is an excellent question because how do we know what God's will for us is because he's not sending us emails telling us this is what you need to do today. And the the, the, the thing is, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I wake up with a to-do list a million miles long like everybody else on this planet. But before... I even get out of bed, before I even open my eyes, I have a little prayer. And as part of that prayer, I say, you know, God, these are my plans for the day, but it's your day. So if your plans for my day are different, help me be flexible to um, adjust my direction. And so when... God throws curveballs at me. Let's say, for example, something I wanted to do cannot be done for whatever reason. Instead of trying to force it, I need to know that I need to just put it off until a more propitious time. Or when something comes in that I wasn't planning on, then um, I need to clear the schedule for whatever came in um, you know, it's a, a little bit of a morbid example, but, you know, this past Friday, um, um, I had to go make a visit. There was somebody who I know, her, a dear friend of mine, her husband passed away, and I needed to go uh, to, to her house to, to make a visit. And Fridays are very frantic days for me, especially in the winter when they're short, short, short days. The last thing I want and the last thing I need on any day, not just Fridays, but especially on Fridays, to have to go uh, do something like this. You know, it takes up time <clears throat> at a time when I'm still short of time. And obviously this is God's will. I, I got I to gotta go do it. Um, and so I put my plans aside um, and, and I go do it. Uh, sometimes... It's something that I, I'm not sure if I should be doing or not. And I also use prayer. And I say, you know what, God? It's uh, blessed or block it, basically. It's, you know, if I'm supposed to do this or not supposed to do it, show me in neon signs. Like I'm too thick to understand subtleties. You know, make it evidently clear in neon signs. You know, if, it's, if I'm supposed to do it, give me the right opportunity to do it. If I'm not supposed to do it, block it. Like, for example, when I, I want to speak to somebody about something, I don't know if it's the right thing to do. 
you know, especially if it's a difficult subject. So, you know, I pray to God, you know, if I'm supposed to say something, give me the clear opportunity and the right words, right? And if I'm guessing, oh, is this the clear opportunity? And that it's obviously not because it's not clear. Um, <clears throat> so I, I check in with God throughout the day. Um, you know, as, as it says in the big book, we know we pause when agitated or doubtful, Right. Um, I need to check in with God. I cannot just go on self-proportion to accomplish my to-do list no matter what the cost. Um, but we need to be unblocked from God. I mean, I, I don't think that I would have this level of clarity when I'm just at step four or, you know, a step eight. It's when I'm recovered and I have a clear connection, I think... Um, that I'm more likely to be able to discern the answers than prior to recovery. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jessica. Or for your question this morning, Jody E., your question comes next, followed by Susan C. Thank you, Melanie, and thank you so much, Nessa. Your message is so clear a clarity that is only born of experience and entire abstinence, I believe. My question is about step nine. You mentioned that sometimes when we come to step nine, whether it's for the first time or for the fifth time, as some of us do, um, we've already apologized numerous times Maybe before we even got to working the steps, we were apologizing to our loved ones for this or that. So if we're coming to step nine after multiple attempts at changing, at changing our ways, do you recommend, um, how, would, how do you go about such amends? It's, a, it's an excellent question, and I mean, this is something that I, I found appropriate for my immediate family, like my husband, especially my husband and my aunt, actually, people whom I had apologized. And, and I just want to uh, talk about another misconception that you just brought up. Apologizing is not necessarily a man. A man means to change. Um, so... When I make amends, I change the way I behave. Amends is not just rattling off some kind of excuse and mumbling, I'm sorry. Like a big book says that, you know, a, a, mum, a, so, a mumbling of I'm sorry will not suffice or something along those lines, it says. Amend means to change. So if I just apologize and I continue doing what I've been doing, that's not amends. Amends is when I actually change and I stop doing what I've been doing. So what I did with my husband and my aunt is actually I... I made amends. I changed the way I was behaving towards them. Um, you know, it was easier with my aunt and my husband because it's a little bit of a less complex situation. But, but I, I stopped. You know, like I, I, I was being very disrespectful um, and and uh, disregarding of her. And every time I did it, I apologized. But then I went and did it again. So I spent a period of time actually being very respectful, being very attentive to her, speaking softly and kindly and lovingly. And then after a while, I went to her and I said, you know, 
for many years, I, I was very disrespectful and um, disregarding to you. And every time I apologized, you graciously accepted my apologies, and then I did it again and again and again. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm working on myself that I can stop being disrespectful and I stop being disregarding to you. And now that I've been working on this, I want to ask your apology, hopefully for the last time, for having been disrespectful and disregarding to you. So with those people, I did um, I did work on, on, on the true part of amends, the change part of the amends, before going to them. Um, but it's also easy to hide behind that. Um, you know, like people talk about living amends. Oh, I don't know this person's apology. I just told them living amends. Living amends doesn't figure in the big book. But what people mean by living amends is means I just have to change my behavior, which is the real change. But we cannot hide behind that and not actually make uh, an apology if one is required. You know, like little children, we do make living amends, quote-unquote, because they don't understand apologies you know, like a three-year-old, four-year-old child. But, you know, like if I'm stealing at work, I cannot say, well, I'm just going to stop taking the supplies home and that's the living amends and I don't have to apologize. Absolutely not, right? I have to, obviously I do have to stop taking the supplies home, but I also have to go to my boss and tell him, you know, I'm sorry, like for this period of time, I took supplies home and here's the money, the money back or whatever, so one doesn't preclude the other. We have to make sure that we don't cut ourselves slack to to enable ourselves to save face. Um, I hope that helps. Yes, thank you, Nessa. Thank you, Jody, for your question. Next up, Susan C. for your question, and then Trisha G. Hey, Susan. Hi, this is Susan C. from Pennsylvania. Thank you, Nessa. Um, really <clears throat> hearing the truth about the program and how um, it's not just like this straight uh, path. And um, my question is, well, I'm in another program right now and working on the steps. However, I'm also, you know, listening to OA Vision. So my question is, you know, clarity's coming up for me, and sometimes it's very uncomfortable. And I'm just wondering, and also there's like with, you know, a, with a period of withdrawal. So how do you work through that period? What worked for you, like going through that those uncomfortable stage, very uncomfortable stages? So uh, I, I imagine that the uncomfortable stages probably deal with the food and the the fact that we want to um, we want to succumb. So um, it is very difficult. It is very uncomfortable, especially because for my for me, I was doing this for 47 years before I recovered. So very ingrained in me, and I distracted my, my myself. The the number one distraction that I used was to be immersed in the message of recovery. So going to meetings, listening to podcasts, and now now I mean after COVID, the COVID has was a, was a gift to our program, I would say, because now there's like a million meetings on Zoom. 
Um, you know, anywhere in the world you can sign up to a meeting um, any time of the day, any day of the week. And there's so many podcasts. So, so that was the first thing, to be immersed in the, in the message of recovery that kept my mind focused on the goal um, and kept me from, you know, going into the recess of the mind that are dangerous for me into the rabbit holes of thought that got me to feeling des you know despair and 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 uh you know I don't even know how to how to explain it uh without like going into details with but but um you know but even any distraction would work um you know calling people uh watching a TV show um, reading a book, um, I'm actually an avid reader, so I also I also uh, read a lot of books, and I read a lot of OA and AA books, the histories and the you know all the different readers. I, you know, um, that would be my number one recommendation: is stay immersed in the message of recovery, speaking to people who who have been through this, who have recovered. Um, that would be my number one choice. Anything except picking up. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Susan. Yeah, Susan C for your question. Next up is Trisha G with her question, followed by Elaine F. And it may be very well that we can offer a couple more opportunities for questions after these two women ask theirs. We'll see what time allows. Hey, Trisha, good morning. Hi, good morning. Thank you both for your service. I'm Trisha G, recovered compulsive eater in the Seattle area. I have a step, step 10 question. And the majority of the time when I'm doing my step 10, I can see my part. I see where I'm dishonest. You know, maybe I've done that thing myself. Or I'm being selfish. The person isn't following my script. But about 3% of the time, maybe once every six weeks, I'm, I'm, what I'm feeling is shame and I'm feeling abandonment. Both of those are some core wounds from childhood. And it feels more punishing to look at it through that lens. I'm wondering if you ever do any self-care first, if there's anything... Um, when it comes up as abandonment or shame for you, if you look at it in, in any way differently and what that would look like. Thanks. Wow, this is a, a very, very good question. Um, I, I, I didn't struggle so much with shame, or I would call it guilt, um, but I did struggle with abandonment a lot. Um, and for me, abandonment was a fear fear of abandonment. Um, and I knew where it came from, and so, of course, I work, I work through it um, to the step, um, which is the self-care that I do. I mean, a lot of people talk about self-care, um, and they talk about self-care in a I don't know. I don't. I mean, I don't want to sound judgmental, but in an indulgent kind of way, like, oh, I'm just gonna like take the weekend off and check myself into a spa and not answer the phone. Um, for me, the best form of self-care that I do is in staying recovered. 
which for me, this involves my work in the steps. My work in the steps and my thought for others. You know, like I do, I try to do a lot of um, a lot of service, a lot of help for others. This is for me, it's self-care. Um, I take a lot of phone calls. I mean, I always work myself for my own for my own issues, but I take a lot of phone calls. I speak to a lot of people. I I have a fair amount of sponsees. Um, um, I, I I'm at this meeting every day. Um, I have my own uh, meeting locally on Zoom. Um, so this is my form of self care: is doing anything and everything I need to do to ensure I stay recovered. Thank you very much for that answer. And your question, Tricia G. Yes, Next thank up, you. before we open up the lines again, would be Elaine F. with your question. And then I think you might have time for maybe, let's go with two, maybe three more after that. Hi, Elaine. Okay. Thank you. This is Elaine F. from New York City. Uh, I just have some fear of asking this. Um, I'll try to do the best I can. Thank you for your wonderful share. I really related. Um, I started doing my step work from the big book in 2005, so it's been almost 20 years. Like I had boxes of writing. The thing is getting it into my heart and my soul and really living it. And I find myself very stuck um, and making excuses of why I can't sit and pray and meditate, uh, why I can't do the 10 steps. Um, it's like I do it in my head. Like I say selfish, selfish, selfish. You know, I, you know, dishonest, and I'm like going on and on in my head, but it really needs to be a pause and written down and really breathe and acknowledge it. And I find that I just have any excuses why I can't take these breaks and or just call someone when it's happening or just sort of swallow it and, and like say, okay, I'll just, I, you know, because it's just too much to get done. I'm like a single parent with a sick husband and on and on I keep making so I just want to say that I just want to see what you have to say about feeling stuck and it's sort of like the last couple of years I've been in program 30 years it's really the last few years that I feel this way wow well the first thing I would say is I'm so grateful that you overcame the fear and asked the question because this is the case for so many people definitely was my case um, for the first nine years of my tenure in the rooms of OA. Um, are you recovered? I'm not completely abstinent in OA, no, I'm not. Okay. I, I tend to just pick at night. It's not like compulsively binging. I just find that at night I want this and that, but I'm not overweight. And I just yeah. feel like I want, I, want, I want food. I think about food because I'm stressed out, and that to me is not, yeah. uh, is not recovered. So, so, so that there, you're, you're absolutely right about that. So that there gives you the, the answer to the stuckness. Um, and uh, I, I also want to talk about another misconception that you outlined there about not being overweight. Something that I learned that was mind-boggling to me was that not every fat person out there is a compulsive overeater, and not every thin person out there is a normal eater. So weight may have nothing to do, although it may be part of the problem for some people, may have nothing to do with the actual disease. But the reason why you're stuck is because you're still in the food. Um, 
And so um, this is actually what I, exactly what I did for the first nine years. I was, you know, you know, in the food, out of the food, in the food, out of the food, in the food, out of the food. And the, in the times that I was out of the food, I worked some modicum of the steps, but I never worked them according to the big book um, instructions, especially the entire abstinence part. And so I think my advice to you is to do what I did, is to get a sponsor who is well-versed in this program of recovery, um, get uh, entirely abstinent and stick to the entire abstinence and work the steps according to his or her instructions, uh, following the big book as quickly as you can. And then you're going to come out the other side and you're not going to be stuck anymore. Thank you so much, Elaine. Elaine, for your question this morning. Let's um, look at the time. Thank How you, Nessa. Up to three more people that might want to ask a question this morning. Are there three? Margaret D. Margaret D. I heard somebody else. Excuse me. Elaine G. Somebody G. Elaine G. Yeah. Elaine. Okay. Hi, Elaine. Let's go with one more and see what time does. Okay, so in the interest of time, let's go ahead and jump right in with Margaret and your question, and then we'll follow by Elaine. Um, thanks, uh, thanks, Melanie. Uh, Margaret D. Georgia, Recovered Compulsive Eater. Um, when I got into program in the late 80s, um, there was a lot of self-help books going around, and there were certain phrases that I bought into um, that really hampered my recovery, and one was the fear category, like, the fear of abandonment, the fear of being controlled, blah, blah, blah. Why did we, why, I guess I'll just say it. So why didn't anybody ever say, do a four-step on that fear? It seems like what happened with me was that it was just like a a little sacred cow because it was a fear of quote-unquote abandonment, when really it was just a fear like any other fear. Is does that make sense? It's kind of like a myth that somehow that's a sacred thing that we can't tamper with. So let me let me make sure that I understand your your, your questions. When you said nobody ever said do a step four on the fear of abandonment, does that mean I'm that sorry, you have no, a step ten? I'm sorry, step ten. Okay. So have you worked through all the steps and you're recovered? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's long gone. It's yeah, that that fear is long been removed. Uh, oh, great. You know, I, I think maybe what 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 happens is sometimes fears are not necessarily manifest at the moment we're first going through the steps, and they, they, they we only realize or uncover them later. I don't know. Like for me, the fear of abandonment was like one of the first probably the first one that I put down on my on my fear inventory. Um, you know, my mother passed away when I was quite young. You know, she died prematurely, and that's, that's where it came from, and I couldn't overcome it. Um, but I would say that if a person is conscientiously working the steps in entire abstinence, following the instructions of the big book and their sponsor, 
um, and they don't address, let's say, some kind of fear, it's probably because they don't realize they have it, and it may be necessary to have a few passes um, until that comes to the fore. Um, but, you know, it's, it's our inventory. It's our fear inventory, our resentment inventory, our personal conduct inventory. So it's, 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 it's incumbent upon me to put down anything and everything. Um, if, I don't, if I keep something to myself that I should have included in those inventories, uh, obviously it's not going to get addressed because how's my, how's my, uh, my sponsor going to know or the person I'm giving away the inventory to going to know that I have this fear? If I know that I have it and I don't put it down, it's not going to get addressed. But if um, I don't know that I have it and it surfaces up later, then that's what step 10 is for. Like one of the instructions I give my sponsees when doing step, ten, um, step four is, you know, I don't want you to take years doing step four. I want you to take a week per chart, a week for fears, a week for resentment, a week for personal conduct. That means... Um, Unless something truly bothers you from when you were three years old that is bothering you now and affecting you now, don't go looking for it. If it surfaces later, you know, let's say you're resentful at Susie because she didn't let you play with her dolls, but it, you don't remember it now and it doesn't bother you now, don't worry about it. If later on, you know, two years from now, you bump into Susie and you still have the same resentment, that's what step 10 is for, you know, to catch things that, either are new or they're just surfacing now. But but I have to take responsibility for initiating the step 10, right? Because I'm the one who's feeling the fear. I'm the one who's feeling the the resentment. So I have to, I have to say to my sponsor, you know, I don't know why this didn't come up before, but I have this really deep-seated fear of resentment and I want to do a step 10 with you. Is that okay? Um I don't know if that, that necessarily answers your question because I don't know if I understood it correctly, but I hope that, um, that it helps in some way. Yes, and you're always helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you, really so much. Thank, you. Thank you, Margaret D., for your question this morning. Hey, Elaine, we have time for yours, too. Elaine G. from New York, your question, please. Yeah, this is Elaine from New York. Um, seems like I'm always looking for a sponsor. I mean, like... Uh, Either have bad luck or what? I don't know. Well, knows that I don't know if I'm being too fussy. I know I know I'm looking for somebody that to help me through the big book. And lately, I've been calling so many people from uh, Vision for You and this and that. And uh, I, you know, I, I don't. I had one day absence. I don't have it anymore. But uh, I seem to, as you said, you know, do 99% of the time. I have like I do everything except stay absent. That's what one sponsor said to me, you know, and, and it's the middle of the night eating, middle of the night eating, I eat in the middle of the night, you know, and, and, and then, the, then when I eat, in the, then when I don't, and when I'm not absolutely, I get very depressed, you know, and um, the big thing was caffeine, so I c- cut out the coffee, I feel better, and, um, but I don't know what to look for in a sponsor. Um. Thank you for thank you for sharing um, all this. Um, you know, um, I had a problem with coffee too. It took me a long time to identify it, um, and I couldn't think it was possible because I was drinking six 
super large cup cups a day. Oh my god. And it wasn't and, and I wasn't losing any sleep, like I was sleeping like a baby. Oh. But then I realized that that's what um prevented me from staying abstinent. Um so I gave it up too. Uh abstinent is hard. But that's the beginning of the process. You know, we need to be entirely abstinent and we have to be willing to withstand the discomfort, which is kind of um, a paradox because the reason we eat is is to avoid discomfort, right? So we we don't want to endure discomfort. And here we're being asked to endure the discomfort of abstinence. And sadly, I don't know any any way around that. So we just have to endure the discomfort of abstinence. With regards to sponsors, there's nothing wrong with interviewing a sponsor. You know, and like I'm just thinking like off the top of my head, like questions that I would ask is, are you recovered? What does it mean for you to be recovered? How do I know that I I am or not recovered? How did you get recovered? Um, How do you sponsor? How do you... um, help people get abstinence? How do you take people through the steps, right? And, uh, you know, because sponsorship is also about chemistry. I mean, like, um, you know, you can have an amazing sponsor but no connection. But but having said this too, I, I also want to talk about another misconception. People think that, a, that the sponsor makes it or breaks it, and it absolutely does not the case. Um, you know, the sponsor is merely a guide, and a person can have the worst sponsor and recover or have the best sponsor and not recover, you know. Um, it, it's really up to the sponsee to take responsibility because it's their recovery, right? Um, but, um, but having said that, you know, there's nothing wrong with interviewing sponsors to make sure that they, they have what you want and that there's chemistry, Thank you. Thank you very much for your question this morning, Elaine G. And that will wrap up our question and answer portion of this particular presentation this morning of a Sunday special edition. I did want to say one more time, Nessa, thank you for your presentation today. It was very instructional and, and quite quite clearly, you know, pointing a light on some of these things that we do misunderstand and take things out of context. It was very, very powerful. So with that in mind, I wanted to mention one more time what the Share ID number is. The Share ID number for today, December 4th, 2022, Sunday, is 19704-19704. And so stick around, everybody. We have a bit more to go, but I would like to close this portion of the meeting by reading from the big book, as we always do at this particular meeting. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and 